podcast a couple months ago. How many uh, former students' podcasts have you been on? There's his podcast. There's one more podcast. And no. two instructors recently launched a podcast. So. <laughs> nice. A lot of opportunities for podcasting, I guess. Hi, welcome to the I Lost My Topic podcast, where we discuss trends in technology, life lessons, and any other random topic that comes up. To learn more or to get in touch, go to michaelclu.com slash lostmytopic. You know, when thinking about launching a full stack one, I'm always just trying to find good topics for it. And if I have good ideas, I think, yeah, I, I love the podcast format. It's really interesting for me to, to you know, I, I listen to a ton of them, so. Yeah. Well, I remember you guys used to interview former students, right? Like kind of the video format? Yeah, the alumni stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be a pretty interesting one, right? I think so. I think the, my only concern there is that it would get old after a while, right? There are so many... It's, a, it's so many, only so many success stories that you can hear before, like, okay, mm-hmm. I kind of get the general pattern. Yeah. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, but uh, I feel like there's a lot of different types of success stories, too, in the alumni community. Like, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I think a lot of people's ideas of success vary from person to person, and a lot of people are, are looking for different things. Like, I feel like a common profile is a lot of people just want to work for kind of an interesting mid-sized startup. Mm-hmm. No, no, I would agree. Yeah, and then there's like a few who, yeah, go ahead. That the the range of what people are looking for is very wide, right? Everything from mm-hmm. working for a startup, starting their own company, working for one of these big companies where, um, you know, you work for a place like Google or Facebook. It's it's almost like working for an amusement park, and so I think there's some people who who love that the appeal of that. So yeah, the the range of what people are, are looking for is very wide. Yeah. Have you felt like the profile of people coming to full stack has changed at all in the time that you've since, since you guys have started? Yeah, a, a little bit. I think that the, what I've noticed is that people have uh, early on, our students were very much, I would say a little bit crazy about taking risk. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and the way I think about this is that they, they were signing up for something that was, unproven, they had no idea what was going on. Our first few students dropped off a tuition check to a warehouse where we hadn't even set up the first desk. Right? So these people were very open and happy to take risks. I think current students, they're, they're much more cognizant of the, the marketplace. Mm-hmm. They know what to expect and what to look for. And they care about things like, curric- like which curriculum this bootcamp is doing versus that one. Mm-hmm. They're very much aware of things like the Council on Integrity and Results Reporting, talking about bootcamp outcomes. They're talking to alumni because they're such a large network of alumni. So it's it's changing. I think mostly for the for the positive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I don't know if I ever told you I ended up teaching bootcamp prep for uh, about two months, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really it was a really cool experience. I I kept in touch with all my students. I was friends with a lot of them on Facebook. And I got to see them like go through the whole thing. They, they actually, a lot of the people who did the bootcamp prep together, they were like very close friends during the program. And then they, they're just like, yeah, it was really cool to see. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great to hear the bootcamp prep. It's it, to me, what I love about full stack is that there's just like this recursive nature where people are helping other people 
through the process. And it's, it's, it's very, very touching to see as an educator. Yeah, for sure. So that actually kind of leads me to one of the questions that I've had for you for a while. So like, uh, I don't know if you remember the first time I like had a one-on-one chat with you, but mm-hmm. it was, uh, you had play, you had opened up your schedule for office hours for my cohort. And I came in and we had like a 15 minute slot and I told you that I wanted to be a product manager at Google. And, uh, I remember that. <laughs> and you just kind of looked at me and you're like, well, that's definitely an admirable goal, but, um, you know, you could also just opt to do like the algorithm stuff. And I was like kind of frustrated. I didn't want to do algorithms, but I think you made an excellent point in that, like it made sense to leverage kind of the boost or whatever that I was going to get from full stack and rather than doing product management, kind of leverage the technical side of it, even if, uh, you know, I wasn't sure how far I wanted to go with that. Um, yeah. I think one thing I'm always cognizant of with students is are they navigating towards what they want? Are they navigating away from what they fear? Mm-hmm. And if I feel that they're navigating away from things that they fear, then I'm, my goal is to realign them properly. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I sense that, especially with, and I'm, I'm not saying this was the case in, in your situation, uh-huh. but sometimes I sense that people say, I want to be a product manager because I'm not seeing myself as a successful engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I, just want to correct them and say that you know you're not that far from being exactly what you need to be to follow that path if that's what you choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, actually, that was really encouraging uh, the way you phrased it. You said it, it really felt like an attainable goal after you kind of presented it to me that way. Uh, so I really appreciated that, and I think that definitely made it more possible for me to I don't know uh, feel like I could actually pursue some of my you know, goals at being an engineer at a big five company. Well, that's great to hear. And I'm so happy for the success you've found and incredible where you are now. Yeah. Well, I haven't really made it yet, but you know, this is a good stepping stone. Uh, yeah, sure. So the question really is like, um, you know, like how do you, and how do you uh, create so much time to give to the community? And like, how does, you know, how do you balance that? And what kind of inspires like, your desire to give back so much because that's not always very common for someone who you know has potentially like a lot of different priorities and different like things that need your attention well i think that i'm incredibly lucky in that this is something that me and my co-founder limit just really really have always loved to do right is to help others grow in their career and especially technically i think it's something that we found our own strength in it and so we want to let it be something that we can have others find their strength at. And so I, you know, I've never really believed too much in the idea of work-life balance. You know, it's important that I create an environment where at full stack where if it's important to people that they can find it. But for me, I think that if you find something you're passionate and you love, then why not lean into it and and really own it? So I, I you know, I really wish I could spend more time with each individual student, with each individual instructor, each individual person that's part of full stack because they all, they all are so incredible. And mm-hmm. the more you know one person, the more the more you fl- like the more a story of one person is fleshed out, the more humbled I am by the kind of people that come through our programs. And so it's always to me an op- I always relish opportunity to spend time with um, with individuals in the program. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, and definitely like everyone else I've talked to has noticed that as well, that you that you 
are really passionate about what you do. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Do you have any advice or thoughts on like, say, say there is something that I think we've kind of talked about this before, but say like, you know, you think you would like to pursue something like say create your own business or work on a really cool side project, but, and you think you're passionate about it, but it's kind of difficult to lean into that passion. Um, what would you say to like encourage someone to lean into it further? That's tough. I, I, I wish I knew the answer because I struggle. It's something I struggle with in my own life. I think the, a few things that I think about one is that oftentimes we are the best, we are the best deceivers of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so you find your natural passions, the things you're interested in. And because you're trying to rationalize it with your career, you're trying to rationalize it with your friend circle, you'll navigate away from, from that feeling. Right. So I think that's one thing to be careful of is, am I thinking about this? Am I trying to rationalize this to myself against something that I'm feeling that I want to be into? Right. So I find myself that with, uh, as for me, as I've gotten older, I, I sense when I'm doing that, I'm trying to, I have a, a hunch, an interest, a passion, and I, I navigate towards it. And I try to protect that early passion from the other things in life that, you know, can steer you away, right? So, for example, it's maybe it's learning a new architecture, a new software development tool, a, a new programming language, or a new hobby. And, you know, the first thing you'll find out is that, okay, this is, for example, I'm really interested in learning uh, some functional programming languages out there right now. Mm-hmm. And I look at it, I'm like, I there's no way to use these. These aren't production ready. The there's no job environment for it. The students won't get any value out of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just you know I lean into it and I keep exploring and keep and keep trying to figure out why it is that my brain finds this interesting. And I've I've gotten a lot out of that that exploration. I think the other thing is to is that something that I, I see a lot is that you know you can't you can't become good at things overnight. I see so many people who get discouraged because they put a few hours, a few days, a few weeks into something and they're not getting what they think they should be. And I really think it's that long, slow buildup. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like in, in exponential curves, that long, slow buildup yeah. starts piling up really quickly. And you don't see that in the early part of that investment. And so sometimes just sticking with something is, is just as critical. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's kind of a combination of being patient with uh, your expectations and then also like trying to figure out why or what kind of themes something appeals to you on or like what levels it appeals yeah. to you on. Yeah, I really think I think really think being patient with yourself is very difficult. We are we are the toughest critics of ourselves. Yeah. I see that so much at full stack that yeah. students are they beating themselves up over something. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, give yourself time. It took it took me a long time to learn this. It took a lot of people a long time to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. If you don't get it right away, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So on that note, I feel like uh, it'd be interesting to kind of hear, I mean, you've experienced a lot of changes, I imagine, in your life from, you know, growing full stack from start to where it is now and and also just like everything else. Uh, Is there any type of advice that you would give your younger self that you've learned now? I think the the advice that I, I always think to myself is that if you want to do a startup, mm-hmm. and I think that don't do one just because it's the cool thing to do. I think startups are very difficult. They're very demanding. 
but sometimes you know and to me i almost think of it as like a sickness like i like like a addiction and I, i knew i need to do it and i think one thing i've learned is that your it's very it's most likely that your cost um your cost of doing it only increase as you get mm-hmm. older. And so when we're young, but, but the inverse thing that happens to people is that when you're young, you tend to think that you're on this, you're trying to keep pace with people in your cohort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So the classic thing to me is like people who, when you're 18 years old, you're trying to keep up with all your friends who are going to college. Now is college the right thing for you? Who knows? I mean, you're just doing it because everyone else is doing it. And it's very expensive because the, investments you make in that time pay off you know your whole mm-hmm. life so i think that there's so many times when i was in my early 20s mid 20s where i was thinking that you know what i'm gonna do this one job i'm gonna learn to learn and then i'll do my startup mm-hmm. and you know if you're if you're good at what you do people recognize that and they keep paying you more they keep advancing you and before you know it you were kind of stuck on this treadmill of you know i'm moving up in the, in the corporate world and it's very hard to extricate yourself mm-hmm. from that so i think if you have a startup in you do it earlier rather than later. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense because at a certain point, it just becomes very difficult to ignore the opportunity cost of, you know, being a director or VP of some company. Yeah, it's it, it gets crazy, right? And I think that, um, you know, if you add family, if you add uh, a mortgage on top of that, it never gets easier to to take those big yeah, risks. for sure. Um. So for you and Nimit, what was the initial, like, full, what did full stack look like as an idea for you guys initially before you even executed on it? Uh, how did you know that, you know, this is exactly what you wanted to do and how did you know that it would work? So what's funny is that Nimit and I were talking about business ideas when he was, his, he was graduating from Wharton Business School. And it was one of those situations where it's very rare that two people's lives line up to take on an adventure together. And so I was trying to organize my life so that when he graduated, we could do something together. So I was winding down my responsibilities at kind of as a CTO of Mm -hmm. a company. And so that when they graduated, we could work together and I would go out and visit him in, in Philly and all his friends at Wharton were just, were just asking us constantly, Hey, we really want to learn how to code. You two are coders. Can you do something for us? And this is 2012. So, you know, Code Academy hadn't launched. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was the early days of the learn to code, the fervor around learning yeah. to code. So we, Nim and I were sitting around saying, okay, we're going to come up with the next great idea. And these people are knowing us, asking us to teach them how to code. And then finally we, we just gave in and said, okay, you know what? We'll teach you how to code. So you'll kind of leave us alone where we work on, you know, the next great thing and then we started doing it and we just we fell in yeah. love with it because you you really see directly how you can help people i, I think there's no better feeling than than unlocking something in someone else's mind it's almost it's 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 a very deep connection with that you can make with somebody when you connect something for them at a very fundamental level in their brain and they see the world in a different way mm-hmm. after that so we started doing it we started we fell in love with it and then all the schools in the East Coast got word of it, all the business schools. So we started doing it at Columbia, Harvard, Penn, MIT. We would, we would sneak into to these MBAs, MBA programs. We, we should work with a student group. We'd sneak in, you know, hijack a room for a day or two, and then do that seminar series. And then 
that started you know really growing, and we were you know getting a lot of inbound requests from all over all over the East Coast, and we said, what would it look like for us to take people where we really wanted to take yeah. them? What would that program look like so that these people weren't just business school students who knew a little bit mm-hmm. of coding, but coders who could work at the world's best companies? Yeah. And that's where full stack started, and and we reverse engineered. We basically look, looked at it from two angles. What would it take to get someone hired at a company that we had? What would it take to make someone we want to hire? And then what are the things that we learned in computer science that we thought were fundamental to us being successful mm-hmm. engineers? And triangulated from those two from those two points into the middle. Yeah. So for these MBAs, like, what was kind of their uh, desire to get out of coding? Did they want to actually build like an entire technical product? No, so they were very much, I mean, in 20, 2012, you can imagine like a business school, the jokes that business schools are all, business school students are always about five years behind the <laughs> trend. And so, you know, this is five years after the, the crash, 2008, and a business school student in 2007 wasn't thinking about tech, mm-hmm. right? Tech was kind of still a little bubble in, in the valley, or sorry, like a little germ of, of industry in the valley. Uh, Google was just kind of starting its mm-hmm. ascendancy and people were making a killing, you know, in mm-hmm. on Wall yeah. Street, right? So in 2012, people were just starting to say like, okay, wow, there are these companies that are growing rapidly uh, that need, you know, kind of management mm-hmm. talent. Companies like Dropbox, LinkedIn, Google, and they, they didn't know anything about technology, right? They didn't know, they didn't know what HTTP meant. Of course, they don't. They're, they're technically... They're proficient with computers, but about how mm-hmm. the web works, how technology starts work, they had no idea. And so they were really eager to see it and do a little bit of it so they understood what the, what the heck all this was. And so that's what they're trying to get out of the seminar series was, can I implement enough of a website so that mm-hmm. I know, you know what HTML, CSS, JavaScript is, what server-side technologies mean, what a database is, and get my hands on top of all yeah. of this stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Um... And that that desire or that need is still very present now in in a lot of different like not just engineers but it feels like designers need to kind of understand that and business people do product managers need to understand that so yeah well, I think the you know there's a there's this idea around like the literacy of, of digital technology and I think programming is a very good proxy for that it's not it's, it's not necessarily the same thing but it's, a, it's the closest proxy we have to saying if someone can program they're usually pretty literate about a wide swath of technology yeah, concepts. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of uh, what the analogy you made too about algorithms. The first chat we had, you said it was uh, the closest thing we had, but it was kind of like this weird ritual that developers use, kind of like animals sniffing each other's butts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, did I say that? Uh, okay, that's funny. Um, I, I think the programmer interviews are, it's the, it's the least... Mm-hmm. Worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense. There's many other, you know, they, 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 I can imagine much worse, much worse things like looking at just your, you know, just the mm-hmm. school you went to. But this is, it definitely feels to me like there could be, there probably could be better things, but it's very much prevalent in the culture of you would never implement this mm-hmm. linked list duplicate, you know, this linked list cycle checker, but do it in your job, but do it here for me right. on this whiteboard. Yeah. So now that full stack's kind of been around for a while and, you know, a lot of the graduates, you know, we're not as worried anymore about how to study the linked list. And we're mostly at companies and trying to progress our careers through that. 
through the the ranks or you know moving from company to company finding a better fit um what kind of advice do you have for engineers seeking to develop their careers technically i think the the thing that engineers don't do enough of is reflection upon the work itself and so you know the the reality is that you can sling code you can you can become what i read somewhere as an expert yeah. beginner yeah right and you're, you're really good at like you can wire up a route get some stuff in a database get it out of database get it to look nice use whatever bootstrap or react framework and you just get good at that over mm-hmm. and over again right and just, it turns out companies need a lot of that kind of work. I think what what the better programmers do is they think about how can I do this better? And, I'm, and I can either do this better because my team is organized better. I can do it better because my architecture is organized better. I can do it better because I have a framework for how this you know helps me do my work. And engineers that do that very quickly move up the ranks of, of something, right? They either become open source contributors, they become uh, engineering management, or they become you know, team leads. And it's, it's important for, for people to be reflective about that. And I think the best way to do that is to either give talks or write, you know, mm-hmm. write a good blog about your engineering yeah. practices. And so it's, it's very easy to kind of get into a rut of, you know, I write a thousand node routes, express routes a year. And that's, yeah. that's just like <laughs> my life. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of uh, extracting yourself from like uh, constantly tweaking pull requests and, and trying to get the perfect like syntax for writing a code and, and thinking more about how can your team produce better output? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's like the meta thinking, right? Not doing what I need to do, but am I doing what I need to do the best mm-hmm. way I'm possible? And and I think that that and. And what are like what are those patterns that you see, mm-hmm. right? Those meta patterns. And so I think like someone like Dave Heinmeier, Dave Hein mm-hmm. Heinmeier Hansen, right? When he created Rails, he was he was just thinking of I'm doing this stuff over and over again. What are the similar patterns, and can I extract that and share it with the world so that a it tells me whether or not my abstractions are good, and b as they make these abstractions better, it improves yeah. my own productivity. And so all all the tools that we have are Mm-hmm. born from this idea. Cool. That makes sense. All right. Well, um, I think that kind of <laughs> pulls towards the end of, uh, you know, the, the, the standard time that I've been doing these. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much. This was really cool. All right, Michael. Well, I'm you know, glad to participate yeah. in your podcast. Hope it goes well. Yeah, for sure. And let me know when it 